So now we've looked at all four tetrads of the Anapanasati teaching of the Buddha. Anapanasati is the most detailed meditation instructions the Buddha gives. And we've been working with the body, calming the body. Even before that, of course, settling and establishing mindfulness. You know, creating that seclusion for ourselves by turning inwards and letting go of the desire and the aversion for the world. And then being present with the body and encouraging it to to become calm and tranquil. And from that seclusion, from that turning inwards and the body calming down, then feeling the pleasant feeling that arises from that. Tuning into spiritual energy, if you will. Feeling that peace or joy, happiness. And then looking at the thoughts and calming the thoughts. Then turning our attention to the mind and lifting it up. Setting up all the conditions we can for the mind to become very still and clear, happy, at ease. But of course, that's not always the way it goes. Because when we're meditating, anything can arise at any time. So those are the instructions. And of course, the last tetrad, you know, after coming out of a nice period of deep calm, then examining the Dhamma. But what do we do when it doesn't go like that? And that can start before you even sit down, of course, because we live in the world and we're human beings. And if you read the suttas, you can see that the same stuff was going on 2,500 years ago. You know, there's physical problems, 
emotional problems, mental problems, trouble with family and friends and society and the world and just no end to it. And there are many things that could be, you know, sort of still part of the memory, karmic history that we don't even know are there. So when we're going about our ordinary life, we develop all kinds of coping mechanisms to deal with all of that. And a lot of them are pretty effective. Some of them we don't even deal with or develop consciously, like just forgetting whole parts of our history, perhaps. We make ourselves busy, perhaps. Or we find ways to distract ourselves. There are lots of ways, and we, and we also make every effort much of the time to try to understand what's happening and, and work with it. And the Buddha really understood all that. And he didn't just give us these instructions to sit down and shut off the world and, you know, go into this spiritual bliss and deep meditation and have all these insights. I mean, yeah, that's all there. But he also knew about all of the rest. So that when we do practice, what do we do when these other things come up? And one thing to understand, first and foremost, to remind ourselves that it's all normal. Fear, anger, sadness, shame, and, and there's nothing wrong with that showing up. And the Buddha said, turn towards it. Try to see, because you're, you're already in a, I don't want to say, in a position, just because you're even able to sit down to meditate, you're in a position to be able to work with what comes up. You can't always do that. Like, you know, we've got people on the planet fleeing from the enemy. Coping mechanisms are important. <laughs> when you're sitting down to meditate in a safe space with, you know, people who are kind and have the same idea of, you know, being good and <laughs> keeping precepts. And, okay, so here we are. But we still have that, you know, whatever might arise. And we're in a position to work with it. So the Buddha said, turn towards it. And that means noticing when those coping mechanisms come in, 
no, I, I want to listen to music. <laughs> you know, I want to eat something, you know, whatever. You know, I want to talk to somebody instead of being with this crummy feeling. But in fact, the interesting part about turning towards it is that those things get smaller. I have a friend who said to me one time that he felt like he had this barrel. It was kind of like, sounded like a 50-gallon drum, you know. All of the monsters were in there, and he had the lid on tight. And I said, I'm not opening that up. I see no purpose in that. Well, of course, do we want to live like that? with that pressed down. No, it's not really, it doesn't really work. It's not freedom. And the interesting part is that we think that if we open that up or we turn towards it, it's just going to overwhelm us, fill the screen. It's going to be huge. And in reality, every time, no matter who it's with, no matter how horrendous, when you look at it, it shrinks. And that's pretty amazing, right, to start off. You know, that first noble truth actually works. Turn towards the dukkha. Running away, trying to hide it, trying to stuff it down, or getting caught up in it and it actually can can grow increase by our being angry or you know like really kind of you might I kind of don't know if I like the word indulge in it but it's it's like we're you know we can also use that as a way of dealing with it which also doesn't really lead to freedom and peace and happiness so Without, I think of it as walking on a precipice that's got sides. Did I ever tell you about this? Because I use this image a lot in my own practice and in talking about it. You know, it's as if you're walking along this ridge and there's a, a long drop on each side. I did this one time hiking in... Um, Zion, I think, National Park, Angels Landing, you know that place? <laughs> it all, I, the wind almost blew me off the mountain. <laughs> it's like, whoa. But you look down on one side, it's like 200 feet down, and you look on the other side, and I think it's 1,000 feet down or something, crazy thing like that. And, um, but here you are, you're on, the, on this ridge, and, and one side down is like getting really wrapped up in the dukkha and kind of perpetuating it by grinding on it. And the other side down is ignoring it, pushing it away, any kind of like, put that out of sight. So we don't want to do either one of those when we actually have the opportunity to be safe. So here we are, letting it be there. And we're not 
we're not in it. We're observing it with mindfulness. So that establishment of mindfulness at the very beginning of the practice is so crucial. And actually, mindfulness, sati, the Buddha includes it in everything. It's like without that, we really can't do much. But he also includes almost everywhere sampajanya, which is clear understanding, clear comprehension. So the mindfulness is being present and aware, but that clarity is the wisdom that we bring along with it. So we, we are here present with this feeling that arises, and it can be, like I said, anything. Grief, sadness, fear, anger, resentment, you name it. But instead of dealing directly, let's see, that's not quite true. We're dealing with it very directly. Not in the mind, not in the intellect. We're not trying to unpack it in that way, but really in the body. So if you're sitting and you're kind of like, you know, breathing and observing your in-breath and your out-breath and suddenly something comes up that's a very strong feeling. It can be anywhere in the body. Your throat tightens. Your stomach tightens. You have this pain in your chest, whatever it is. You start observing it. Look at that. Maybe it's a memory that triggers it. Or maybe it's a, um, just something. It can be anything, a sound, a smell. It doesn't matter what it is that triggers it. It doesn't even matter what the story is. You set the story aside and you stay with the feeling in the body. And really watch it. Watch it change. Be present with it. You're mindful, so there's a part, like, um, I told some of you already this, but years ago, this was before I even had really, oh, no, I guess I had already been to Thailand, maybe, and working some with the Dhamma, but I was working with someone who had actually co-authored a book about this stuff, and she, a therapist, and for two years, we, I met with her, and she would just coach me through this process, which is extremely helpful. So if you have, like, like I have some pretty serious trauma in my history, and if you have, you know, whatever you have, if there's a, a lot of stuff that can come up and to work with, it can be really helpful to have a coach. And she would notice when I would go back up into my head and start, you know, like thinking about it. Or she would notice when I was taking some exit, you know, to be stepping away from the whole thing. And, and to be able to, to come back and be with it requires kind of developing some stamina. So then I thought, okay, I'm going to stick with this. I'm going to stick with this feeling. I actually could stay with this feeling for a couple of days, and then I started to feel depressed. So next session, this is what happened. You're clinging to the feeling. 
Oh, okay. So it's like just really, really paying attention to what we're doing. So instead of like doing anything with it, just observe, be present. Not clinging to it, not pushing it away. And then it moves, it changes. It gets more diffuse, Um, you know. And then there was a series of questions that this person had that you could ask. One question that was really helpful to me at one point was, what was the first time I felt like this? That really brought out something from the past that turned out to be helpful to know. And there was this list of questions And the process was to kind of journal about this. So at the top of the page, there's like one phrase about the trigger. You know, this, so-and-so said this, that's it. And then just to the body. And what does it feel like? How do I work with this? What... How big is this feeling? What color is this feeling? If it had a color, does it, what's its texture? All these questions that you'll see also in a process called focusing, which was from a long time ago. You can still get that book online, I think, and maybe even download for free. It's just a little thing, but it's very useful. And that came out of the work, I think, at the University of Chicago. Do you think that's right, Marcia? Do you know? Anyway, it was um, Eugene Genlin, and they, they were really, this is a group of psychologists, and they were really interested in why ther- talk therapy works for some people, and for a lot of people it doesn't. And they were trying to, trying to study that, and they thought, it's something the therapists are doing. So what they came in, this is the idea they came in with. And you can read about this like in the intro to that book, Focusing. And they thought, okay, if we can just kind of figure out what we're doing or not doing and why it's successful for some people and not for others, then we can do a better job. So they started doing videos of initial sessions with clients. And they started to recognize not something the therapist was doing, but something the client was doing that made them able to predict who was going to be successful in working through whatever they were dealing with and who wouldn't within the first one or two sessions. They could even have a graduate student watching the video and predict with accuracy whether this person's going to benefit from therapy. So then the, the whole thing is, like, what are they doing? And it was something they could actually observe, which is interesting. It's this going inside. Like going inside and feeling the experience. And from there, understanding it. And I really think this is what the Buddha meant in the first noble truth. You're present with that feeling. And you're coming to understand it. That dukkha. So when you're asking these questions about that feeling, 
the main purpose of it is you're establishing your mindfulness, you're observing. You ask a question when, when you're having a strong feeling, you ask a question about that feeling. You know, okay, this is, what does this feel like in my chest? It's like a rock. How big is it? You're in the position of observing. You've placed yourself in mindfulness to even answer this question, which is great, brilliant, because now we're not doing all the other stuff that we usually do to try to deal with what arises. We're watching, we're observing. And then that's when you can see how impermanent this thing is. And you can learn about what else is attached to it. So I decided I was gonna do this process for everything I was triggered about for like three months. And I, some of you have already heard this story, so forgive me, but I told my daughter this. Now my daughter is a middle-aged woman now. This was a long time ago, 20 years ago. She was a young woman always very interested in the human mind and she's a clinical social worker and she does great work with young people and I told her I'm going to do this process for everything I get triggered for mom what else are you going to have time for <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's probably why we have kids <laughs> So, so what I learned, I don't think I had to do it for three months. What I learned in doing this over and over again, being present with it and, and looking at it in a way that helped me get down to what I would kind of call the root misunderstanding. There's something about reality that we don't understand if we're dealing with all of the, if all of these feelings and experiences feel real to us and have a, you know, that impact on us, and we get caught up in them. And what I, what I was dealing with, the formulation of it deep inside for me, the thing it always came back to was, I'm not good enough. Or am I good enough? And for any of us, it'll have some different, whatever formulation it has. There's some fundamental idea, first of all, that there's an abiding self there, an essence, that can be good enough or not good enough. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of like, okay, you start to see what our patterns are and you start to understand where they're coming from. And this might sound really psychological, but the Buddha was, he was, he was the physician. He had all the bases covered. <laughs> he, the Dhamma is so complete and consistent, it's amazing. So he says, turn towards it and understand it. This dukkha needs to be understood and then what's the next thing? You, you, you do it and you say, this dukkha is understood. So Ajahn Sumedho would use this example of when he was 
a young man and he was in the military, something happened that he said was a horrible, humiliating, terrible experience that he said he could think of that 30 years later and have the same anger come up. Yeah, isn't it interesting how we can carry this stuff for decades and the feeling is still the same? But he talked about how and once you know it, you know about it, then it comes up and you go, oh yeah, you, hello, <laughs> you, number 68, okay, you, <laughs> you're here, what, sit down, you know, <laughs> you know it's just, just like that. Okay, so that, this, I'm bringing this out because this is a distinction that's useful when we're meditating and things arise. You don't have to turn and look at everything. If you've seen it already, you know it already, you don't have to dig into it again. You want to be sure you're not prematurely deciding that, setting it aside. But if you already know it and you already understand it, then, then maybe the approach is different. Maybe there's bringing some more compassion and kindness around it, or maybe there's just you know, moving right into, if this is like, this is a habit that the mind has, keeps wanting to present this same thing, and you already understand it, then maybe the right approach is to gladden the mind. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, whatever it is, it will lose power the more you look at it. Even in a series of like three sessions, it can, you know, it just doesn't have the same power over you if you're able to be present with this feeling until it dissipates on its own. It'll have a crest and it'll fall away. It doesn't last, it can't. Like someone one time told Ajahn Chah that they had so much trouble with anger. And they, you know, went on about how big this anger is. And so Ajahn Chah's like, okay, you stay angry, stay angry. <laughs> Stay angry. How, let's see how long you can stay angry. Of course you can't. You know, it goes away. <clears throat> but because, because he was telling the person to, you know, go at this from a different angle. The angle you've been going at it is not working because you can see you've tried that over and over. Okay. <clears throat> so when we're meditating and something comes up or... Maybe we're not meditating, it's just whatever you're doing, this thing comes up. And then what I did with my, um, my determination to like, look at everything that was triggering, I had to, like, you know, I'm at work, I can't just like, <laughs> you know, pull off to the side and do that for a while. So I had them lining up on the runway when I got home. <laughs> Okay, here we go. <laughs> and you can, you can, if you're not in a safe place, you're not in a, in a position where you can be present with it, just log it. I'm coming back to you later. Promise and keep the promise. And you go home in your safe place, and then you turn towards it, and you do that first noble truth. And then you do the second noble truth, you know, which is, what is the cause of this thing? Which is, like I was saying, you start to investigate down. It's not necessarily an intellectual investigation. In fact, it's not. 
this is what those people were doing with focusing. They're, they're tuning into what's inside and what arises is out of their intuition, out of their, how do you call it? What do you call it? Here it's coming up out of the space. Um, there are some interesting practices to like try to cultivate that ability to have things rise from deep within. Um, there was something that I did um, a ministry training, a four-year interfaith seminary, and there were a lot of techniques that we used. Focusing and, and um, guiding people through that process was one of them, but there was something called a journal workshop, and I'm sure that book is out there too. And it was this kind of stuff where you have a, you're, you're given some kind of topic and you're supposed to just write whatever comes up. And it's like finding those, those techniques that help us to settle in a space where intuition, something deep inside, opens up and you can, you know, put it on paper or however the technique works. But to kind of like know that if you pause, this is a lot like the contemplation idea we were talking about last night. You, you pause and you, and you let whatever that idea is settle, whatever that question is settles and something, it comes up from a deeper place. And really and truly, I think this is what happens with insight. You know, we can't get there by reasoning, the Buddha said. We can't get there by intellectually figuring it out. It's going to be something you never knew before. How can you work it out? So, So these things are really helpful. And when we are, like, like, doing that process in that kind of state, Things come up that are amazingly freeing, healing. And it's, it's important to, um, to really, like the Buddha said, okay, then you, you, you look at the cause <clears throat> and then you abandon it. Well, how do you abandon it? I think we need a good example here. Let me see if I can come up with it. So when one of those journaling sessions, okay, I'll, t- I'll tell you the story. Maybe it'll help. Um, you, this, might, this might sound crazy. I'm not sure how it's going to sound. <laughs> but... <clears throat> um, living with my partner and we had a washer and dryer downstairs and um, I came out and saw that he had put my washed clothes on top of the dryer and I just was like angry and I'm like huh look at that (laughs) better journal (laughs) Oh, he, 
he has no idea how much drama he missed. <laughs> so I'm sitting on the stairs and I get to this point, you know, like, where did I first feel this feeling? And I'm a little girl and I'm getting yelled at for getting my clothes dirty. Of course, my mother was super meticulous about stuff like that, but she never intended to traumatize this child. <laughs> um, and I'm crying and crying and writing and, you know, and I'm, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm getting through it and I'm happy. It's like, it's so weird. And my partner comes downstairs and he's, oh, sweetie, what's wrong? <laughs> and I'm crying. It's like, it's totally fine. No problem. <laughs> And I st start to tell him a little bit because I'm not angry anymore at all. I'm not upset with him in the least. And he's and and uh, and I just said, well, you know, the clothes. And I wiped it off first. <laughs> you know, I mean, the story is so irrelevant by that time. <laughs> means nothing. It's coming back to where did this start? This, this feeling of um, what? Not being good enough? Or whatever, right? Whatever. And, and to really be able to let the feelings be there, but at the same time there's this solid wise, mindful part, observing it all. Like there are times, you know, your stomach can be so tight and you're watching this whole thing and at some point it's like, you know, I think it would really be helpful to put some food in there. And it's like the mind, the, the, the wise part knows to take care of you. And I hope this is making sense and it's like, don't be afraid to be with those feelings. Don't be afraid, because this really is the way through them. And once you've done it, like I said, it just doesn't have the same power anymore. And, you know, you do it again, it's weaker. You do it again, it's weaker. And you start to understand it, and you really are abandoning the cause. Because the cause doesn't make any sense related to the Dhamma. It's, it's a misunderstanding of reality. Not something to blame ourselves for. It's just part of the package of be being a human being and not awake yet. And then comes noble truth number three, the cessation. Oh, I didn't have to argue with my partner. <laughs> we didn't have to create more problems. Um, you know, I can like have people put my clothes in the dryer on top of the dryer. <laughs> Whatever, you know. And and you know, it's, so it's it's um. It's important to notice the cessation. So the Buddha, over and over again, when you read the suttas, a lot of the suttas, then you start to see that he, he, something happens, even full enlightenment happens, 
And then you look and you know and you see that it happened. You always are taking stock. You see that this cessation has occurred. That's finished. And even if it's not finished, if something like it comes up again, it's okay, just do it again. It's not a problem. So there's no perfect meditation. (laughs) Well, sometimes they feel really good. (laughs) But there's no perfect um, mm, I was going to say there's no perfect path, but that's you know, like we could get kind of frou-frou here and go, well, it's all perfect. But <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't feel like you have to fit into the model or that the model is going to be the right, exactly right thing. It's there for our learning and our guidance. And then you take it where you need to take it in order to work with whatever's coming up now. And it's okay. I mean, I have tremendous respect when people have these strong feelings and instead of blasting them out on everyone, they're holding them and being with them and turning to them and letting them go through and understanding their cause and really growing, really changing. You look back and, wow, I'm different now. It's not the same anymore. And of course, we all need to Well, I believe we'd all benefit from this kind of practice using the Four Noble Truths. So the Fourth Noble Truth is crucial, right? Because it gives us all the ongoing groundwork laying, you know, real development of our our speech and our actions and our mental processes and, you know, it's and our, and our meditation processes, and it helps with all of that. And that's there so that we can be working the other three noble truths effectively on a solid platform of mindfulness and wisdom. And it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. The way the Buddha just like put that together, discovered that, that came up from a deep place inside of him, if that's what we can say about it. <laughs> and here it is for us to use. But it took a long time for me to even have any idea how you put those first three noble truths into action. And then I realized that everything that ever worked for me in any kind of therapeutic process was really in, in the Dhamma. <laughs> It's right there already. If we can just recognize how we can make it apply in our life. And, you know, if we come up, if we come up against something that we don't know how to handle, that's what our spiritual friends are for. Um, because, of course, 
that can happen with any of us. And we all benefit from preparing ourselves, you know, even if we feel, I mean, some people will say this, you know, yeah, my life's not dukkha, I'm really happy. Of course, <laughs> there are places where it's not going to be the case. But look what's common. We're aging. We're all going to die. And we keep putting it off. Okay, it's going to be in, you know, 10 years, 12 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 5 years, whatever. You know, I've read that even when people have been told how, you know, their chance of surviving another 2 or 3 years is probably minimal, they're still putting it way off. What if we put it right here? This is what the Buddha was trying to encourage us to do. Like, what if it's tonight? Um, there's a reflection the Buddha suggests. Like, you, you know, you, before you go to bed at night, you think of all the things that could kill you during the night. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. A snake could bite me. The roof could fall on me. You know. <laughs> I was just trying to get real here, you know. And then when you wake up in the morning, you think about all the things that could kill you during the day. <laughs> this is intended to give us a sense of urgency, <laughs> you know, to get serious, <laughs> to get serious about this, and and to be ready for it. You know, it's it's like. Any of us, any day, could suddenly find ourselves in the hallway of an overly busy hospital, just you here or there with your mind, and nobody's really helping. And then, do you have the tools? Have you put in the practice? Oh, that sounds so, I don't know, I don't like that. <laughs> but can we use these images as a way to encourage ourselves while we've got the chance to to really embrace the practice and take it seriously and do it in the way that really works for you. Um, you know, moment by moment, hour by hour, regardless of what else is going on, there's a way to practice, a way to be mindful and present, a way to look at the reality of whatever is happening the impermanence of it, those three characteristics that the Buddha talked about right from the beginning of his teachings, is it permanent or impermanent? Is it suffering or happiness? Is it self or not self? We can do that all the time, anything that arises. And, and when we do and we see um, you know, that things are, really are impermanent. And when we are hiding that fact from ourselves, we suffer. And when we really see that and we start to let go, let go of the idea of me and mine, I'm someone who has this, <laughs> um, it really opens up a whole different world. We start to see things like, yeah, with this particular body, 
with this particular situation, I've been taking a whole lot of things for granted. And then setting myself up for disappointment. So that particular partner I was talking about, one day he just said, I don't want to be married anymore. I was not ready for that. <laughs> Huge waves of feeling for days. I'm walking around through the house, picking up a deep cup, going, well, I'm not going to be using that anymore. <laughs> I had moved in with him. And I thought, why is this so painful? Well, I knew it was impermanent. I just didn't think it was that impermanent. <laughs> you know, and so it's like using whatever comes as an opportunity to really, really practice. You know, it's like the mind keeps wanting to pull away from reality and we want to show it reality. And when we do, when, when, it, when it really becomes real for us, when something happens that we know for sure, without a doubt, because of a deep experience, that there is no self here, that everything really is falling apart, the most surprising thing is that what happens is this joy. We've been trying so hard for so long to hold it together, and we don't have to because its nature is to fall apart. <laughs> what a relief. <laughs> and then what happens is that we don't have to be so, well, we don't have to be invested in all in who we are, who we think we are, who anybody else thinks we are. <clears throat> that saves a lot of energy. <laughs> and the only thing then is really kindness. It's like I was listening, I was at a talk one time. Ajahn Amaro was giving a talk in California and about non-self and this person says, but I have kids. Who takes them to school? <laughs> he said, kindness. Kindness takes them to school. Kindness walks the dog. Yeah. This path is the most beautiful thing, and you're on it. I'm so pleased. So, at this point, I don't know if you want to stand up and walk, do walking meditation, or if you want to sit longer, but it's up to you. And um, thank you for doing such a great job with your life that you're here and walking this path. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.